I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful. I am powerful. I am strategic and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight. I will be wounded. I will be targeted and I will bleed. I will not tire. My wounds will be healed. I will see tragedy. I will feel pain. But I will be restored. My feet will not stumble. My hands will hold fast. I will not be intimidated. Hey, that's right. Once again, we're on the topic of future events. Anybody think that maybe that's just kind of an important thing in the Bible? And Anybody have any inkling why that would probably be so? Because maybe three-fourths of the Bible deals directly or indirectly with Bible prophecy, dealing either with Jesus' first coming and certainly his second coming. So maybe that's an important thing. Yeah, okay, thank you for your vote of confidence. And we've been seeing with future events, can we know the future? Absolutely, especially if you, hello, read the Bible, what a concept. And we thought, well, hey, a lot of people get freaked out and scared. They say you shouldn't teach that stuff. We said, well, that's not what the Bible says. God promises that we saw prophecy comforts, it calms, it converts, it cleanses, it compels, it clarifies, hello, we win. Okay, and then so we saw, well, hey, what's the next thing on God's prophetic time clock? Well, as we saw, that is going to be the rapture of the church, followed by the seven-year tribulation. As we saw, we're going to have basically a beginning of time. We saw that in Genesis. Revelation talks about the end of time, or what theologians call the eternal state, okay? Now, Jesus, if you want to look at it, being the centerpiece of this time frame, and he rose from the grave, so you're going to get it above. And uh, so, anyway, so the Old Testament, of course, look forward to the coming of the Messiah. You and I in the church age, in the New Testament, we look back at the coming of the Messiah. This is where it all is, the crux of humanity, the crux of God's timeline, the cross of Jesus. Now, so what's next? We saw that there's nothing holding this up. It could happen tonight. Praise God. Anybody want to do some rapture practice? Okay, get ready to go. It's great for the glutes, too. No, what? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so the next thing is the rapture of the church. Now, right after that, you're going to have the Antichrist, Daniel 9.27, making a peace treaty uh, with the people of Israel, fulfilling Daniel's 70th week prophecy. That's what we talked about uh, last week. And so then you're going to have what's called the seven-year tribulation. As we saw last week, if you're here, the reason why it's seven years, because it's the final week of the 70th week prophecy. 69 have been culminated with Jesus being rejected uh, in his triumphal entry of Jerusalem. So you got one year left. Now, at the end of that, Revelation 19 talks about Jesus coming back at his second coming. We come back with him as we saw there. Uh, because we leave here, we're enjoying uh, being with Jesus, we come back down here, and this is what we're going to deal with, hopefully if we get that far, uh, the 1,000 year reign, the millennial reign, why is it called the millennial reign? 
It means a thousand. You guys are sharp tonight. Woo, I tell you what. And, uh, but then what we're going to see after that uh, in re- the end of Revelation, uh, towards the end there, uh, Revelation 20, is you're going to see what's called the great white throne judgment, where all the people in hell were raised up, okay, uh, before God, and they were judged. And uh, then basically they go, you thought that was bad? Uh-uh. You go into what's called the lake of fire, okay? They get chucked into there, into lake of fire. And right after that, this is where you had the final rebellion, the great white throne judgment. And then you have uh, what is again called the eternal state. So that's it. So the Christian, we know not only the beginning of how everything was orchestrated, but God clearly tells us literally till the end of time. Because the eternal state is that, eternal. It means there is no time. It's just you are. Okay, it's just get rid of the watch. It's just the way it's always going to be. And that's what I say all the time in jest, but it just, it's a deep thought if you really think about it. When you get to heaven and you look at the characteristics of heaven and all the joy and the bliss and the perfect rest and perfect peace and the fulfillment of enjoying God's fullness and his glory, it never ends. It's not just for a weekend. It's just not like, man, remember that two-week vacation we took one time? This is forever and ever and ever and ever, and you can't get kicked out. Anybody glad? Wow. And so God talks about this. This is the benefit we get when we take a look at future events. Then we left off, okay, the rapture's next, and we saw, well, well, now let's talk about this seven-year tribulation thing. What is the, and this is where we left off last time, what is the purpose of this? And when you understand the purpose, we're going to look at the three reasons why, okay, you, you understand, well, it's kind of ludicrous then. Why do people continue to try to put the church into this time when it uh, does not fit the purpose of this final week of Daniel 70's prophecy? That's where we left off at the top of page uh 94 okay we saw that the first purpose okay was that it was going to be a time of was the word there was judgment okay is the church going to be judged for sin no that's already been done at the cross right so you're looking at one of the major purposes of the seven-year tribulation it is a time of judgment god is going to judge this wicked rebellious world for sin how can you say the church is going to be a part of that now you're starting to denigrate the cross of Christ. That's not what it's for, okay? And we saw that there at the top of the page. To make an end of wickedness and wicked ones. Are you and I, hey, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a wicked one. No, you're not. As we saw before, you're a holy one. That's the word saint, hagias. It means holy ones. We're not considered in God's eyes a wicked one. Under judge. Praise God, we're set free from that, okay? Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord's coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its what? Sinners from it. Are you and I a sinner? We say it, but positionally before God, we're not. The Bible calls us saints, which means holy ones. Now, the thing is, we need to live up to our identity in Christ. We will sin. But as far as our identity, we are not sinners, okay? And, and it's kind of an important thing, I say. It's, it's not, I don't say it's a, you know, just jump change over words. It's, it's really important because if you continue to say that you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, pretty much what do you think that you're always going to do? And, right. But if you say, no, positionally, God loves me. I'm perfect. He perfectly loves me. I'm perfectly accepted. He, you know, it just, it, it's, that's where the, the love factor begins to uh, kick in gear. Uh, Paul says that Christ's love compels us. Why do I do the Christian things? Why do I say no to sin? Why do we even have that desire? Why do I want to live a life of holiness as he is holy? Because I'm a holy one now. Nothing can take that away. God looks through those rose-colored glasses, the blood of Jesus Christ, and he doesn't see us like we see ourselves. We're perfect. We just need to live up to that under the power of his spirit, okay? So we are uh, uh, not sinners uh, in God's eyes. We are saints. We're holy ones. Isaiah 24 
says the earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. Listen, and it totters like a shack. Can you imagine being on the earth at this time? Revelation picks up on this, and he talks about how the earthquakes are so big, the earth is completely shaken that every single, not just one, not just a portion of the world, but every single mountain, every single island on the whole planet, all at the same time is removed from its place. And then at the end, it's another one that's so bad that every single city on the whole planet is leveled, collapses. That's what he's talking about. Now, how many guys would say that that's, uh, that's God's a little bit upset with sin? You know, and this is the, the oxymoron, this is the hypocrisy. The non-Christian today would shake a fist at God and say, God, if you're real, how come you don't do something about this evil? What kind of an ogre are you? This just continues on. Hey, listen, the Bible says the reason why he's giving you time is so that you can repent so you don't go straight to hell, let alone the seven-year tribulation, okay? Which is a precursor to hell, basically. You think that's bad, and that is horrid. Mm, nothing compared to forever and ever and ever and ever in hell, okay? But he's giving you time. But the point is, the Bible's clear, but there comes a day, this is what we're talking, it's judgment day. God is putting an end to this baloney and he's going to pour out his wrath on this planet. Well, he's being mean. <laughs> well, come on, make up your mind. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You want him to judge it and put a stop to it and he's going to. And the only reason why he's waiting is not because he's slow as some consider slowness, the Bible says. It's because he's merciful. But it's storing up. And that's what he says. That you're storing up wrath. Boom. Judgment day. And that's what he says. For its transgressions is heavy upon it. It will fall and never to rise again. Okay, in the shape that we see this world, when Jesus Christ comes back, this baby gets renovated like Garden of Eden. This is the last time we're gonna have to deal with a wicked ruler. The Antichrist is the last one. And this is the last time we're gonna have to live on earth. It's all messed up. It's gonna be awesome when Jesus comes back. The first purpose for the tribulation is seen to be a punishment. Is your blank there? a punishment in history upon the whole world. Again, are we under the judgment and the punishment of Jesus? No, who took our punishment for our sins? Jesus. So if the purpose of the seven-year tribulation is for punishment and judgment on sins, why do you keep putting the church there? Doesn't fit the purpose, okay? And uh, upon the whole world, for it sins against God in a way similar to that of the global flood in Noah's time. The Bible says that in Noah's day, of course, was extremely wicked. In fact, it got so bad that the heart of man was continually wicked. That's all they didn't even think about. It's just doing one wicked thing after another wicked thing. Does that sound like today? Yeah, and Jesus said, as it was in days of Noah, so it is going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be a repeat there, okay? And we've seen that before. But also, number two, the second one is to bring about a worldwide revival, okay? The first one is judgment. Second one is revival, okay? God demonstrates his mercy in the midst of his uh, judgment. The purpose is given. It's fulfilled in Revelation 7. Uh, during the first half of the tribulation, God will evangelize. That's your next blank there. Evangelize the world by means of the 144,000 Jews and thus fulfill the prophecy found in Matthew 24. The gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And then also, I would say, it's also evangelized by the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. You got the angel that declares the eternal gospel in Revelation 14. And of course, I would say just logically, anything that you and I might leave behind. So stock up on those DVDs, okay, and do something. Okay, but that's part number two, okay? So for evangelization, uh, but you and I are already saved. And of course, then we're gonna go. So why would you wanna put the church during this time that doesn't, doesn't fit? The third one's really abundantly clear, and that's to break the power of the holy people. So if you will, what you're gonna see is a national, finally, revival uh, for Israel. 
is your three purposes, okay? As we see, finally, the tribulation is going to be a time in which God, through evil agencies, what? You mean God's so powerful that he could use even evil to still do something good, which demonstrates good, bad, ugly, whatever you want to call the event in your life, God is still able to do what he says in Romans 8, 28, it's all for good? Yeah, one of the most powerful examples, we don't have time to go there, Genesis chapter 50, and that's the story of Joseph, right? And what did his brothers do? Chucked, chucked him in the deal, wanted to kill him, and only the older brother said, no, man, we can't do this. And then they lied to their dad. They sold him into slavery. And he's in there, and he continually goes downhill, uh, one bad thing after the next, and he's not doing anything wrong. And, and he gets thrown into jail, and he gives a prophecy, and the guy says, oh, I'll remember you. And they, never, they leave him there to rot, and then he, all, he goes through all that. And then finally, he gets rise to power, and then finally his brothers show up, and what's he say? Oh, I will ignore it. He says, no, what you did was evil. And you meant it for evil. But God overrode the whole thing and he allowed it for good what's taking place right now and that's the saving of many lives. Isn't that wonderful? And that's what you see. See, I've said it before, but Satan during this time, he thinks he's having a heyday because the restraining influence of the church is gone. We'll get to that hopefully in a second. Okay, but, but, it's, but it's not him with a loose cannon on deck. He gets to do whatever he wants. No, God, just like back with Joseph, he's allowing it for a good purpose. He's doing it to bring a, uh, evangelize the world. Okay, and again, as we saw last week, why does he need to do that? Because there needs to be people who enter into the millennial kingdom to repopulate the planet, okay? Jesus and us are gonna come back in our glorified bodies and it's gonna be a great time, okay? But it also answers, well, where are the people that are going to be here for a final rebellion? If it's us, we don't have our sin natures, okay? We're in our spiritual glorified resurrected bodies, okay? Uh, who's going to rebel? Well, that's the people who uh, came to Christ, entered into the, they didn't die, so they entered in, okay? Well, guess what they're going to have? Because they're still going to marry and they're still going to have babies, so the earth is going to get repopulated. Their children are going to have sin natures. They're already saved, praise God. But their children over that thousand-year reign with Jesus literally reigning on the planet are still going to have to need to be saved. This is part of the reasons people would say, well, you know, I don't believe in the millennial kingdom. You know, they spiritualize him. And they say, because it's blasphemy. Because uh, it, if you take it literally, meaning that you're not supposed to spiritualize the text with the millennial kingdom, uh, it says there that there's going to be uh, sacrifices again. And Jesus Christ uh, did uh, already became our sacrifice. You're right. They're not for, during the millennial kingdom, they are not for the removal of sins. That's always and only through Jesus Christ. It's an annual reminder of sins. Because these are people who weren't even here where we're living. Okay? Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's not like what we got to deal with today at the right hand of the Father and we have to take this all by faith scripturally. This is really what happened 2,000 years ago. In their case, he's right there. He's not on the cross. He didn't, you know, he's not dying before them. He's alive. And so these are annual reminders that he is the one who came. You still have to receive it by faith. They're not for the remission of sins, but it's just like a, a reminder. Do we do anything like that? Do we like celebrate anything to remind ourselves that some important event took place? Yeah, we have a whole calendar for them, right? Uh, birthdays and how many guys remembered that it was my birthday on Sunday? How many guys realized that uh, that was actually my son? But thanks for the, thanks for saying happy birthday. I'll take it early. Anyway, so... <laughs> I feel better already. All right, let's continue on forever. She's going to make through here. Anyway, Daniel chapter 11, he talks about this. He talks about this uh, purpose of the seven-year tribulation, okay? The tribulation of time is God's going to, uh, through evil agencies, uh, prepare Israel. Israel is your next blank there. 
for conversion and acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is her Messiah, resulting in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Israel's got to come back first before Jesus uh, uh, comes back because, again, one of the purposes is in the millennial kingdom is he's going to fulfill all the rest of the promises that have not been fulfilled of the Davidic promises of the, the uh, one from uh, the lineage of David is going to rule literally on the planet, over the whole planet. That hasn't happened yet. That's Jesus. He's going to do that uh, at that time. Daniel 11, we're uh, given the conditions during the tribulation. Daniel 12 uh, talks about why this is allowed. And it says this, I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing on this bank of the river and on the other bank of the river, and one who is said to be dressed, uh, a man dressed in linen, was above the waters of the river. How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. That's half of the seven-year tribulation. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be accomplished. This passage provides the third goal of the tribulation to break the power of the stubborn will of the Jewish nation. The tribulation will continue, uh, uh, will continue and will not end until this happens. So from this, the third purpose is deduced God intends to break the power of the holy people in order to bring about a national regeneration. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11. He says, hey, don't get high and mighty Gentiles. He says, the only reason why you're in here uh, enjoying the blessings of having a relationship with God is because right now the Jewish people are under a temporary blindness. But there's going to come a point in time, and Paul tells us it's at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation when the Antichrist goes back into that temple and says, oh yeah, hey, duped you, I'm God, worship me. And then they're going to say, whoa, and that's when Jesus, we've been dealing with the last three weeks on Sundays, Jesus says, you better get out of town, man. Don't go back to your house, those flies are going to get you. Wasn't that creepy? man you better get a fly swatter that has a machine gun on or something anyway so get out of there right and unfortunately we saw zechariah says two-thirds of the jewish people are going to be annihilated but one-third oh we've been duped been duped and then god sovereignly protects them is the point the tribulation the top of 95 is referred by scriptures as a time like the world has never seen christ days at that time such has occurred not since the beginning of the world until now nor shall ever be Okay, the world will see unprecedented destruction and a massive outpouring of evil as the restraining, is your next blank there, restraining of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. Okay, now think about it. How bad is the planet right now? It's getting pretty wicked, right? And it's just, it's horrid and it's gonna get worse. And the Bible says even that wickedness we saw before in our final countdown study, that's a sign you're in the last days. There's gonna be a rise of wickedness. It's gonna be a horrid society. It's gonna be a repeat of Genesis chapter six as it was in the days of Noah. And that day got so wicked that that's all they ever did. We are fast approaching that if we're not already there on a continual basis. We're seeing that repeat. But as bad as it is now, imagine when you and I are out of here and there is no Christian left. There is nobody to stand up for what is right. There is nobody to say, no, that is wrong. There is nobody to say, hey, Jesus loves you. Accept him as your savior until the evangelism efforts start kicking in. But all that influence, all the godly influence, all the prayers of the saints, all of it's gone from the whole planet. Can you imagine how dark it gets instantaneously? When that's gone, folks, it's just going to be a horrid time. Jesus said, it's going to be the worst time in the history of mankind. Okay, you don't want to be there. It says this, that we've seen the church is going to be raptured before this period, so the natural question is, well, why should I as a Christian be concerned, huh? Just sit around on my uh, fire insurance because I got blessed insurance and just, yeah. You know, and that's what a lot of people say, uh, that they would uh, cop on the seven-year 
or on the pre-trib position that we're out of here before that say, well, see, because that, that makes Christians lazy. Are you crazy? It does just the opposite because it can happen at any time. So if ever there was a time to tell somebody about Jesus, you better do it now because we may not make it through this study. It gets, it gets rid of the procrastination. And because we saw before, what's, what do you want your last thing on earth to do? Just be involved in a worldly life and unholiness? You need to live for Jesus now. It can happen anytime. Anytime. So it gets rid of laziness. I ain't got time to goof off in my walk with Jesus. I ain't got time to procrastinate to tell somebody about the love of Jesus. I got to do it now. That's what you get from the pre-trib. Actually, their accusation works against them. Makes you lazy as a Christian. If I believe, and I don't, that Christians, you know, the mid-trib position, aren't out of here until the trumpet start, which again, as we saw, is the wrong trumpet, okay, uh, then, then I know, I mean, I could goof off until the three and a half year, right? If I was supposed to go in through that, I would do exactly what they're accusing me of. Because it's like, well, I, I know that I have to see the Antichrist make a peace treaty with Israel, but still, I gotta make it through all six seals. But when I get to that sixth seal and I start seeing the earth rumble, okay, I'll get right with God and start to... If I knew that it was any time, halfway, three-quarters, pre-wrap, post-trib, any of those, that's when you could get lazy. But the pre-trib takes that away. It's called the doctrine of imminency. It can happen at any time. I gotta get busy serving Jesus and I gotta get busy telling people about the gospel. I don't want my loved ones, my friends, not even my enemies to go in that time frame. It is horrid, okay, as we're gonna see. Uh, but that's gonna, we're gonna take it out of here. So the natural question, well, why? Well, first of all, he says, God's word is important, hello, and it is to be handled with great care. Regardless of the passages, study whether it's covenant or chronology or poetry or parable or prophecy, all are to be diligently studied and applied. Why? Because all scripture, even prophecy, yeah, all scripture is all scripture. And the Bible deals a lot with prophecy. So how could you be a student of the scripture if you never study that portion of the scripture, which is the major portion of the scripture, right? But it's all good for you. I didn't say that, God did. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, and that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The tribulation is important because, hello, the scripture teaches it. Number two, second, it's important because in a sense, Satan is unmasked, and we see his ultimate intentions and purposes. And, and so when we understand his plan, we can understand and apply that today to spiritual warfare. Okay, for example, during the tribulation, Satan uses religion in a false and deceptive way. This stands as a warning for us today. He's so evil, folks. The tricks that he uses during the seven-year tribulation, he doesn't just wait till then. He uses them today. So if we're told what he does during then to dupe the whole world, we're not caught off guard today is what he's talking about. Okay, and then finally, it's important because much of what we see today has uh, been seen in the past as a forerunner, which will come. For example, the current impulse towards globalism. Do we see any of that? One world government, one world economy. We start that this Sunday, uh, Lord willing. And uh, one world religion. Yeah, this push towards that, okay, should not be surprising for guess who? The Christian, for those who study all the Bible, because our sovereign God has foreordained these events and we should take comfort from the development of humanity's sinful nature in conjunction with Satan's rebellious plan. Both are going to be brought under judgment of a righteous and omnipotent God. Nobody gets away with nothing. God has the last word and you want to be on his side when the hammer comes down. That's what we get from that, okay? Let's continue on. Well, is Jesus really coming 
to earth again. Yes, he is. So we've already talked about the rapture. That's the next event. We've talked about the seven-year tribulation. It came from Daniel's 70th prophecy, and we just looked at three purposes for it, none of them which fits uh, trying to squeeze the church in there, and that's not even all of them. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, but we're going to see, yes, Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, at his second coming. But we also see this in the New Testament in the book of Acts. This is uh, apparent, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 6, okay, Jesus is on the uh, Mount of Olives there, and his disciples ask him the question, Lord, is at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered and indicated that it's not their privilege to know this event. Only the Father, is your blank there, only the Father knows this event was fixed by his own authority. And again, as we saw before, he's evoking that uh, language, the Jewish marriage and customs, okay? Jesus, as God, of course, knows everything, but, but, uh, but only the Father, when the Son had to go back to the hoopah, to the Father's house with many mansions, uh, the Father was the one who had the last word, say, okay, now that's a suitable bridal chamber. Go get your bride. That's what he's talking about there, okay? Anyway, so this was the natural question these Jews uh, to ask, since the prophecies and the covenants of the Old Testament spoke of a time when the Messiah, which they believed he was, okay, at the time, would reign in righteousness on the earth on the throne of David in Jerusalem. So he rose again from the grave. They're excited. Okay, he's back. Woo! Sweating bullets there for a little bit. Uh, we should have listened to him in the first place because he told us repeatedly that he was going to die. He's going to raise again. Okay, but now he's back. And so we know the Old Testament prophecies that, okay, is this the time? No. They didn't understand what Paul says later again was a musterion, a mystery, the church, the church age. And that's the phrase that we're, that's the, the time frame we're in now. Okay, then he's coming back after that final week. Okay, and uh, it says, uh, uh, after the Christ uh, repeated the great commission to them, he began to ascend in heaven and two angels appeared and stated to the disciples, this Jesus who's been taken up to you in heaven will come, listen, underline this, just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. And if you're familiar with that text, then how did they see him go into heaven? Dude, it was like, it was weird. He whipped out this like, uh, Kirk Enterprise, Kirk Enterprise, right? And he punched a couple buttons and and just, wall. Okay, so he's going to come back like that. No, how'd he, how'd he go? Literally, bodily, visibly. In fact, the text said, I love it, you can, it's a guy thing, right? He's sitting there going like, they're, they're watching him literally go into the clouds and they're still looking at him and he keeps going up and he keeps going up and he keeps going up and they're still looking at him like, hey. and then here's the two angels. Hey, dudes, the same Jesus, right? So that's the whole point, okay? Christ ascended into heaven visibly, bodily from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Guess what? He's coming back the same way. Now, we talked about this before. This is what's ludicrous when you have all these that Jesus warned about, Matthew 24, the false Christs who will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, right? It's like, how could you fall for that? How could you fall for that Jesus of Siberia guy? That's not how he comes back. And this Jesus you've seen leave this way, visibly, bodily, straight up into heaven, he's going to return in Russia. And he's going to hide out in this village. And everybody around the world is going to gather to him. How could anybody be doing? The guy we saw from Australia, they got out to cool accent, even boogers or whatever. And he comes to Texas and he rents out these rooms. This same Jesus that you see right now, visibly bodily in the sky, he's going to rent out rooms and conference rooms in Texas and hold seminars. And they, you will know he's returned. This Jesus that you've seen, but visibly bodily in heaven, he's going to come uh, and he's going to set up a church in Florida and he's going to have his followers tat -tat tattoo 666 on their bodies as a sign of allegiance. Jose Miranda, that we saw. How do people even 
sneeze at the idea. How did he leave? He's coming back the same way. You're going to see him. Every eye is going to see him when he comes back. The Bible says they're going to mourn. Oh, boy, did we make a mistake. Yeah, you did. You really did. Okay, but it's going to be bodily. It's no, there's no secret room. Here he is in the desert. Here he is over here. Here he is in a conference room in Texas. It's going to be visible, okay? The same way. This is made clear in Zechariah 14. We'll read, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in uh, front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west, a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north, the other half towards the south. At this time, the campaign of Armageddon, is your blank there, Armageddon, which began in Revelation 16, will culminate in the final battle, and Christ and his holy army will destroy their enemies. This event will follow the rapture and the seven years tribulation. In other words, it's at the end of the seven years, okay? And at the time of Christ's return, the Antichrist and his forces will be what? Underline this, put asterisks around it, put your own little rockets there. Do something because they're going to be defeated and destroyed. Anybody excited about that? Defeated and destroyed. This is described in Revelation 19. The Antichrist and the false prophet at this time is going to be thrown into where? Lake of fire, which again is an actual event. And later when it says, and Satan was thrown into the lake of fire, it says where the beast and the antichrist or the false prophet are, which means after a thousand years, they're still there, which means, guess what? It's eternal. It's not annihilation. Some people want to teach that because they just can't stomach this. Really forever? Yeah. Heaven's forever. Hell's forever. That's how egregious our sins are to God who is holy, who is holy, who is holy. And until you get that. See, when you preach, believe it or not, annihilation, and you try to soften hell, you denigrate the cross of Christ and the mercy of God. Because when you realize that we deserve to go to that place, all of us, myself included, and burn there in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he even made a way out. And then his way out is perfect and complete and is completely free and he did it all. And you're going to the complete polar opposite forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and nobody can take it away. Wow, that magnifies his love and his mercy, doesn't it? But if you want to cheapen the punishment, you cheapen his love. People usually don't think about that, unfortunately. Uh, this is described in Revelation 19. It's also a time when Satan will be bound, not allowed to tempt humanity for the period of a thousand years or the millennium, Revelation 20. This is the period that is referred to as the millennial kingdom. And wasn't that a spaceship on Star Wars? No, no, no. This is millennial kingdom, not the millennial falcon for you Star Wars Trekkies out there. Uh, millennial kingdom or the thousand year reign of Christ. All right, let's take a look at that summary. The millennial, uh, millennium is a biblical doctrine and theological concept of the thousand-year rule of Jesus Christ on earth, okay? And uh, he says it's where he's going to literally rule and reign from uh, heaven or in Jerusalem, and he's going to fulfill the Abrahamic promises are going to be filled. The fact that the kingdom is an earthly one can be seen all throughout the Bible. Isaiah, Zechariah, uh, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Micah, and Zephaniah. And then the New Testament talks about it, and that's that passage that Jesus is talking about. He says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he was doing this over the Last Supper, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about, he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's drinking of the cup of the vine with him right, you know, right just before the cross, right? He's not going to do that again with us until he comes back again, literally ruling bodily on 
planet Earth. Then he'll do it again. That's the time frame he's talking about there. Uh, to that. The most extensive New Testament passage regarding the millennium is Revelation 20. And John talks about the chronological sequence. You got the binding, the rebellion, and the judgment of Satan in the millennium. Six times in Revelation 20, the number 1,000 appears, emphasizing the duration of the earthly reign of Christ. Even though Revelation 20 is the only place in the Bible where the specific length of Christ's kingdom is mentioned, the kingdom itself is mentioned and described dozens of times throughout the Bible. It's a fascinating study. Uh, Isaiah 60, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. The future kingdom of God is going to have two distinct phases, the millennium and the eternal state. However, the overwhelming emphasis on the Bible is dealing with the thousand-year reign of Christ in his future kingdom, the millennium. Uh, it's a biblical reality that is yet to be realized, but in my notes, I got dot, 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 but it's coming soon. It's coming soon. And we need to be looking forward to it, okay? Uh, but uh, let's continue on. And at the end of the millennium, there's going to be a final judgment known as the great white throne judgment, and all the unbelieving dead who are raised at this time unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire and believers will enter into the eternal state described in Revelation 21, 22. And that's where we have what's called the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, a lot of people sometimes get that passage wrong and the timing wrong. When it talks about how the earth is going to be swallowed up by fire, the first judgment, as Peter talks about there in 2 Peter chapter 3, I believe, he talks about how the earth was deluged with the flood, with water. The second time the earth is going to be completely destroyed is going to be with fire. That doesn't happen during the seven-year tribulation. It gets annihilated during the seven-year tribulation. It gets really messed up. But as far as the complete fire, whoosh, that doesn't happen until after uh, the uh, final rebellion, great white throne judgment, and then you get the earth is completely, uh, and the universe is completely swallowed up in a big flame. Well, that's kind of weird. Actually, scientifically, we know that that can happen. Anybody hear of an atomic bomb? Okay, uh, scientists today still have no idea what holds that thing together. They can describe it, proton, electron, the neutron, but as far as what keeps this thing from flying apart, I don't know. Okay, in fact, when they were building the atomic bomb, I believe that one of the biggest fears was if we start this chain reaction, is it really going to stop? Right? Well, guess what? Who holds all things together? Colossians. Jesus, okay? And who created the universe? Jesus. He upholds and sustains it. The Bible says, basically, and the words that's used there, will melt in fervent heat. Uh, some translations talk about literally gives you the picture of the atomic structure basically god's going to say to all the uh, atoms in not just on earth but in the universe now break apart and you're going to see one massive fireball <laughs> and then god's going to do a new heavens and a new earth and so shall it always be this baby's done with okay which i always thought was funny isn't it funny how we all we no, no wonder jesus says store things up in heaven not in this earth why because this baby's going to blow why would you want to spend all your time and your resources and everything on something that's going up in flames? Isn't that goofy? Okay. But let's very quickly talk about, last couple of minutes here, the characteristics of this time frame called the millennial kingdom. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, the government at that time is going to be a theocracy, meaning Jesus, God, theos, God, is going to be literally ruling the reigning on the planet. Uh, Matthew uh, states that the 12 disciples are going to rule over the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. There's going to be smaller divisions of authority, subdivisions rewarded for faithfulness. That's you and I, the Bible talks about. Uh, war is going to be a, a relic of the past. Jerusalem, that's known now for war, bloodshed, and international tensions, are going to become at last a city of peace and the capital of the world. It's not going to come by military might 
or peace treaties or nothing. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is the only one who's coming and bringing peace back. Paradise is going to be regained. The earth is going to be renovated back to Garden of Eden. Uh, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the world. Listen to this. He will be truly the God of that age. The whole world in all of its economics, in all of its labor, in all its social life, in all its morality, in all its understanding and learning and opinions and thoughts and ideas and concepts will all reflect the mind of Christ. Which means it's opposite to the world like ours today, which has the goal, which has as the God of this age, Satan, and everything in this world, all the minds, all the philosophies, all the economics, all the governments, everything reflecting Satan. But this world is all going to reflect Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Okay. And uh, this is going to be truly a golden age. And that's what we all dream for. But guess what? It's really coming. It's not pie in the sky. It happens when Jesus Christ comes back. Okay. Then uh, there's going to be religious peace. Jews and Gentiles, the whole planet will be worshiping Jesus together. Can you, I put this in mind now. Can you imagine that church service? Mega church, mega church. <laughs> nothing compared to this baby, right? Whoa, and everybody really worshiping uh, Jesus. We're gonna be there with, uh, of course, our glorified bodies. We're not gonna have the sin, okay? But then there's gonna be people with mortal bodies who continue on. They're still gonna have the sin, so our, our existence is gonna be a little bit different. Uh, the, people are still gonna have babies during this time, but they're gonna have longevity of life. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, if you, again, you look in the passages there we mentioned in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, you see that the time of the millennial kingdom is one that is characteristic of the, what's called the fullness of joy. How, how much just in one day do you really have the fullness of joy? Well, can you imagine every single day the fullness of joy in your existence on earth? It's going to be characteristics of holiness. The land will be holy. The city will be holy. The temple will be holy. The subject will be holy unto the Lord. If they still have TV at that time, I probably won't have to be so protective with my kids. You ain't watching that. 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 Why do we even have cable? Right? Glorious. It's going to be a glorious kingdom. The glory of God's going to be in full manifestation. Comfort. Listen, Jesus, according to the Bible, will minister to every need so that there will be fullness of comfort in that day justice there's going to be administration of perfect justice for every individual full knowledge the ministry of the king will bring subjects of his kingdom into full knowledge doubtless there's going to be unparalleled teaching ministry of the holy spirit i got it in my notes guess what you won't need google it's a whole lot better fullness of knowledge sickness is going to be removed the ministry of the king jesus as healer will be seen throughout the age so sickness and even death except as a penal measure in dealing with overt sin will be removed. Again, those people, not us, those people who continue on have children who still have the sin nature, they can still be judged for sin. Meaning that sometimes God takes you out because of your sin, right? We've seen that before. So that they might die. But, but again, what happens is you get uh, uh, longevity of life comes back. And these people are gonna live for a long time. So as the text says, if you live at 100 and you were to die, it's as if you were a baby. Okay, but anyway, we'll get that in a second. Uh, we're gonna have a unified language. Zephaniah talks about this. Uh, language barriers are going to be removed. Why did God uh, confuse the languages at Babel? Because we came together and we were rebelling against God. And he says, man, they keep this up. There's nothing they're going to do. So let's go down and Babel and confuse their languages, right? Now we're all going to have a unified language, which means we're all going to be able to communicate, okay? We're all going to, no, no language barriers, 
There's going to be unity even in that. The manifest presence of God, the fullness of the Spirit, again, a long, rich life. Listen to this. I like this comment. Uh, During the millennium, righteous people, again, if these people who still have the sin nature want to rebel against God, he might take you out, or you're going to be punished for sin, etc., blah, blah, blah. You might not make uh, your full lifespan that you could, okay? Uh, Righteous people will reach their full life. Listen, they will live as long as the trees. Huh? Isn't that something to bark about? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, don't, yeah, whatever. Uh, a man or woman in his or her 60s will be considered as a youth. Contrary to now, we consider them as retirees. And uh, I thought this, in my notes, I'm not gonna say, thus saith the Lord, but if you do a study and you look at the pre-flood society, when you had giantism going on because of the canopy and the atmosphere and the double air pressure and twice as much oxygen we have today, and that's what we find in the fossil record, you not only find giant lizards, dinosaurs, you not only find uh, giant animals, you not only find uh, dragonflies with five feet wingspans, you not only find cockroaches two and a half feet long, beavers eight feet long. Well, why do you need beavers eight feet long? Well, because the trees used to get, we have the roots, uh, they used to get a thousand feet tall. So you need bigger beavers to <laughs> chop down those bigger trees. God thinks of everything. But you also find in the fossil record uh, bigger people. People got bigger. Well, how did Noah build all that stuff? That was big. Well, hey, his sons were probably much bigger, and you definitely want them to have them on your basketball team. You just dropped it in the basket. Okay, and we see that in the false record. So I got to thinking, hey, man, so if there's renovated to Garden of Eden-like conditions, and then you got the longevity of life that we read in the Genesis account, that comes back, then maybe it's going to be that lush environment again, which is going to produce giantism, which means finally I will probably get rid of this antagonism towards my wiener dogs. Because at that time, maybe they'll be the size of a rhinoceros, and they will be manly and sick them, Sammy. Ha, 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 justice. It says justice here, too. But it'll be cool. I, I want to, I to share this one as we close. It talks several different ways about how we're still going to work, or people going to work during the millennial kingdom, but it's going to be a just economy, and our work will not be in vain. Listen, listen to this. Isaiah talks about a couple different places, chapter 65. And he says, um, uh, it's going to be a, as a source of our provision. We're not just going to sit there and, and float around in clouds and watch me do that repeatedly. That would not be a good thing. It's supposed to be a fun time. Uh, but we're going to work, okay? There's going to be work, uh, and it's going to be a source of our provision, but it's not going to be in vain. Listen to this. In our time right now, even though rank-and-file employees work for 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week, still what they receive is just sufficient for their survival. No more money left for, you know, some of the fun stuff. Recreation, tropical vacations, all that kind of fun stuff, typically, right? You get, it's called taxes, okay, amongst other things. Okay, debt and all that stuff. In the millennium, people will have time to enjoy their hard-earned gains. Their work will yield multiple gains, much more than what they need for survival. They will have enough resources for tropical vacations, leisure, and fun. Okay, we're going to be able to enjoy. The Bible talks about how there's going to be increased light. The Bible talks about how there's going to be buildings and, and, and building taking place and agriculture and things of that nature, and everything's going to be abundantly provided. Well, and part of that may be because of the increased light, because the earth being renovated. It's just like even I could grow a garden at that time and prosper and not only eat it, but have tons left over. That's the picture that it has. It's going to be economic uh, prosperity. Our work will not be in vain. And listen to this guy. This is, I came across this one. He said this, there, there's going to be no want. He said this. He said, some who study the riches of the earth uh, estimate that the combined value of all the gold, the silver, the grain, the oil, the timber, the fish, the fruit, the minerals, etc., on earth, that if you were tapping the whole thing at once, is calculated to be one decillion dollars. 
He says, so I counted that up, and I repeated, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, novillion, and decillion is apparently the order. Now, he says, taking pen to paper, I uh, divided the earth's population into this figure and saw that in the millennium, everyone would be, if we shared the wealth, a billionaire. Not a millionaire, a billionaire. Isn't that awesome? And then, of course, we have where the wildlife is going to be tame, and it says at the time you're going to have peace even with nature, and then you're going to see that children can play safe with lions and snakes and wolves and things like that. So I don't know about you, but I'd say, where has this teaching been all my life as a Christian? Why haven't we heard of our future, of what we have in store? Why haven't we heard of this incredible millennial kingdom where I could actually grow a garden, my wiener dog's going to be the size of a rhinoceros, and I'm going to be a billionaire. Woo! Yeah! I can't wait to get there. How about you? No wonder the Bible says, John, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 22. If you read here, take this to heart. You are not once, not twice, not three, but at the end, two, four times quadruply blessed if you study Bible prophecy and future events. That's what you get out of this. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay? The, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal. Okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission... That's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. 
The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 
or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com, or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.